Hi folks, I want to welcome you to our adult Sunday school time here at the Kerwinsville Christian Church. And through our Sunday school time, we have been doing a survey of the Old Testament. Last week, we concluded our series in First and Second Kings, Second Chronicles. We entitled that Israel's Kings and Prophets. And if you were with us last week, you know that at the very end of Kings, Second Kings and Second Chronicles, Israel is... Jerusalem is destroyed, Judah is destroyed by Babylon and carried away into captivity for 70 years until the time of Cyrus, the first king after the Babylonian captivity of the Persian kings of the Medo-Persian Empire. And he gives a decree for them to go back into the land. So now we're going to move into the next three set of books in your Old Testament that are narratives and that would be Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And so we're going to look at these books. We're going to entitle this series of lessons that we're going to be doing, The Return to the Land. And so it's going to be about Israel, Judah, the Jews, returning back to Jerusalem, to Judah, uh, basically because the king of Persia has allowed them to do that. And so that's going to be reflected in those three books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Esther, not so much. Esther is going to be talking about the Jews with regards in the Medo-Persian Empire. But this is what's going on, and you're going to see what's happening here with Israel since they returned back to the Lord. You're going to see some old problems, uh, definitely some old problems. They haven't learned their lesson even after 70 years of captivity. But we're going to look at that over the next few weeks, next few months, as we go through these books. So as we begin our lesson today, we need to go back and kind of reflect on what are historical books. And then we're going to do some introductory material for these three books that we're going to look at. So let's first talk about the nature of historical books. And this would be true not just in the Old Testament, also with the historical book of Acts in the New Testament. All right, so first thing I want you to notice is this. Historical books are known as narratives, okay? So these are narratives or stories, okay? So I just want you to know that. Biblical narratives tell us about what happened, not just anything. So they tell you what happened. So when you go to a biblical narrative, it's going to tell you what God wants you to know about this historical event that's going on. It's not going to fill in all of the details. It's not going to give you all of the historical things that happened, but only what God wants you to know at that certain point. So just so you're aware that that's what a narrative is. They're not just stories about people who lived in Old Testament times. So a lot of times we look at these things and say, oh, well, you know, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st Samuel, that's about Samuel and Saul and David. Well, no, that's not necessarily true. You're going to see that there are other things going on that God wants you to be aware of and other people and interactions and so forth. So these are not just stories about Old Testament characters that we would just share in Sunday school. They're stories about what God did to and through his people. So these are stories about what God did to and through his people. So for instance, when you talk about just doing stories, 
I'm going to be honest with you, you're not going to ever hear Ezra mentioned in a Sunday school program for the kids as far as the great things that Ezra did. Well, that's in part because of what Ezra did, and we're going to see that. He was a priest, a scribe. So I want you to understand that God has a purpose in why he shares these stories. This is about what God is doing, bringing the people back from captivity, and what he's doing through his people at that time. These are not allegories or stories filled with hidden meanings. This kind of happened after the apostles died. After the apostles died, the church became primarily Gentile without an understanding of the Old Testament or understanding of Jewish thought and, and, and the story of what is happening with the Jewish people. The stories of the Old Testament became things that were allegorized or we had to find hidden meanings in them so that they would be applicable to Gentiles. But that's not, the, that's not true with, with historical books. These are not allegories simply to find a spiritual meaning. And what we also need to understand is that when we talk about narratives, they do not always teach directly. There's not always some main lesson for you to learn as you're going through this. That's especially true when you look at, we're going to look at several passages here where they talk about a census, when they talk about the list of people who returned. There's not always a direct teaching there for you and I. Now, each narrative within a narrative does not necessarily have a moral all its own. So when you have a narrative, there's going to be certain events that take place. They're not given to convey a moral. Well, that's the moral of the story here. That's what we should take away. This is our takeaway from it. That's not necessarily true. It's simply a record of what's going on. But we can learn from it, and we'll, we'll learn what we can as we go through our lessons. Now, let's talk about reading Old Testament historical books. So you and I need to approach an Old Testament historical book a little bit different than, say, the books of the law, which were the five first books, or even the prophets, which we're going to look at later as we go through our survey. <clears throat> so again, let's just remind ourselves that a narrative does not directly teach a doctrine. So a narrative is not directly teaching doctrinal material, okay? So you just need to be aware of that. Now, they usually illustrate a doctrine or doctrines taught prepositionally elsewhere. So maybe you're in the, in the New Testament and you're seeing a teaching that Paul is conveying or one of the writers of the letters is conveying, and you're like, wow, that is so illustrated by this event that took place in the life of Israel, or from Ezra, or from Nehemiah. So a historical book may illustrate a doctrine that's taught somewhere else, so you need to be aware of that. First of all, when you talk about reading an Old Testament historical book, you need to recognize this, that they record what happened, not necessarily what should have or ought to have happened. Do you understand? It's just a record of what happened. That's why it's pretty frank when you look through 1st and 2nd Kings, especially even when you look through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 
there's a record there of some godly men, godly kings who did what was right, but the record also tells you what they did wrong, how they screwed up, how they messed up. It doesn't necessarily record what should have happened. It records what happened, period. That's what's going on here. You know, our tendency is, is we want to paint everybody wonderful and great, but they're not wonderful and great. They're human beings. They make mistakes. <clears throat> what people do is not necessarily a good example. So when you look at what's going on in a narrative, it's not necessarily a good example for us to follow. And you need to realize that. And not necessarily say, well, you know, because so-and-so did this, we must be able to do this ourselves. That's not appropriate when you're talking about reading a historical book. Now, one thing you've got to recognize, we've seen this already because we've gone through a series of historical books so far in our survey of the Old Testament, and that's this, that most of the characters are far from perfect and their actions are too. So most of the characters that we're going to look at, they're far from perfect. They're not the epitome of everything. I, I, sometimes in church we want to lift everybody up and say, wow, David, wow, look at, look at him. Look, I'm telling you, they're far from perfect, and their actions are definitely far from perfect. Some of them just do outright wrong. Now, sometimes, here's what happens. We're not always told the end of a narrative. And this is going to be true when we go through Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going to be in direct conflict with some other leaders who are in the area who are not happy with Israel coming back to the land, with Judah being reestablished and the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. And you don't know what is the end of the narrative. And you just need to be aware of that. So we're not always told the end of the narrative whether what happened was good or bad. You don't always know the end of the narrative. So you need to recognize that. And so let's just be honest, all narratives are selective and incomplete. So again, we, are, we should understand that, that not everything is being told to you. Only what you need to understand with regards to what God wants you to see about himself, about his people, and ultimately about the coming Messiah. They are not written to answer all of our theological questions. So when you look at these historical books, they're not written to answer your theological questions, just so you're aware of that. So again, when they do teach, they teach either explicitly, that is, explicitly, that is with a clear, clearly stating, or implicitly, clearly implying. And so you can find that from narratives. Implicit doesn't mean secret. So let's just walk away from that when we're talking about reading through these narratives. When we talk about going from Joshua all the way up to Esther, let's just walk away from this whole concept that's out there that there's some sort of secret teaching here that only a select few people can get. And let's just be honest, God is the hero of all Old Testament narratives. God is the ultimate one. God is the one who is the hero, and you need to be aware of that. Okay, so let's get into some introductory material concerning these three books. So we're going to look at Ezra, 
talk about some things there. We're going to look at Nehemiah, talk about some introductory material there, and then we're going to look at Esther. So let's start with uh, the book of Ezra. We're going to look at the title, okay? Now, when you understand the title, you need to recognize something first, and that is that Ezra and Nehemiah are one book in the Hebrew canon. So if you were to go to the Hebrew canon and look at the scrolls, they would have Esther and Nehemiah in one book. However, there is evidence that the two books were originally separate, and they're separate in our English canon. Okay, so they are separate books. When you open up your Bible and you go to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they're two separate books, okay? But there's evidence that while it's one book in the Hebrew canon, it, they were originally two separate books. And I think that's because they have two separate authors. The name Ezra comes from, a major, from the major person in the second half of the book. So the name, the book of Ezra gets its name from Ezra, who is basically dominating the second half of the book. Now, the first half we're going to see is because it covers some other material. But then when we get to when they're back in Jerusalem, we're going to see that Ezra is very much prominent in the narrative. Jewish tradition and early Christian leaders attributed the book to Ezra. So we're, when we talk about who the author is, so let's get into the issue of authorship now. Jewish tradition and early Christian leaders attributed the book to Ezra. Internal evidence points to Ezra since the author refers to himself in the first person. So when he's referring to himself here, he's always referring to himself in the first person. So that must mean he had to be the one to write this. Now, let's talk about the dating of this. So the book of Ezra covers two distinct time periods, okay? So chapters 1 to 6 are reflective of 538 to 515 B.C., okay? 538 to 515 B.C. Chapters 7 through 10 are reflective of 458 B.C., and that's where Ezra is prominent. The timing, the time of the writing of the completed book could not have been earlier than about 450 BC. So as far as we know, the whole aspect of the timing has to be around 450 BC, when they returned from captivity, exile, back to the land. Now, let's make some general observations about the book of Ezra, okay? So the first thing I want you to see here is this. Ezra continues the history of the post-exilic Persian period where the Second Chronicles ends. So Second Chronicles ends with the story of Jehoiachin being lifted up and the decree of Cyrus. Now, this continues the story, Ezra does, and it's concerning that post-exilic Persian period. And so that's what we're going to see here. The book shows that God has reestablished the covenant with the descendants of Jacob. So God is reestablishing his covenant with his people. We see that especially with the rebuilding of the temple that would be the second temple under Zerubbabel. 
It shows the development of a new pattern of worship which focuses on the local synagogue and scribes. So when you come to the New Testament, and especially the Gospels, you are introduced to this whole concept of synagogues and how they are a prominent part of the worship of Yahweh. Now, you're saying, how did we get there from before that when there was the temple, but people were worshiping in these high places? Well, Ezra shows us the development of this new pattern of worship with the synagogues. Now, again, let's talk about an outline. If we're going to break down Ezra so that we can understand it, especially as we move forward, we're going to start with Ezra next week. Let's talk about an outline. So the book of Ezra can be divided into two main sections, okay? Two main sections. So I'm going to give you those two sections here right now, all right? So the first section, if you'll notice on your screen, is the restoration under Zerubbabel. And that's in Ezra chapter 1 through Ezra chapter 6, verse 22. And then... When we come to chapter 7, again, remember, we're talking about a different time period now, around 458 B.C. We're going to look at some reforms under Ezra. So we're going to see Ezra chapter 7, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 44. Now, to help you to kind of grasp that, let me give you a structure of the book. We're going to see a diagram here. So you'll notice I've got the two sections restoration under Zerubbabel, and then the reforms under Ezra. But then we can divide it into further sections in those main sections. So in chapter 1, we're going to see the proclamation of Cyrus and the return and how the people reacted to that. Chapter 2 is going to be the people who returned in the first group. And then chapters 3 through 6 are focused on the rebuilding of the temple. So then when you come to the second section, which are the reforms under Ezra, we're going to see the second group returns. That's in chapters 7 through 8. And then in chapters 9 through 10, we're going to see what is the judgment that is taking place there. Now, let's talk about the book of Nehemiah. Okay, so the book of Nehemiah, let's take a look at a title here. Nehemiah means Yahweh has comforted. That's what his name means, okay? Now, the name Nehemiah comes from the major person in the book. Nehemiah is the governor, is the one who's sent to be governor over Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so he is the one for whom the book is named. Most Bible expositors agree that Nehemiah authored the book. So most would agree that Nehemiah is the author. Now again, let's go back. We talked about that Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew canon are together. However, it is very clear that they're two different books. They're two separate books, although they cover some of the main topics together, but they're written by two different people, and most would agree that Nehemiah is the one who authored the book. Nehemiah probably wrote the book that bears his name soon after all its events were completed. So this was probably written after everything that is mentioned 
in Nehemiah had taken place. Now, this means the book was written about 530 B.C. or shortly thereafter. So this is sometime after 530. So Ezra was written sometime around 540. This is written about 20 years later or shortly thereafter. Now, let's talk about some general observations from the book of Nehemiah. So again, the book continues the history which began in Ezra. So this is a continuation of the history that narratives that were found in Ezra. The book documents the reestablishment of the covenant community in the promised land. So it's the covenant community and it's basically the reestablishment of God's people in the promised land. Nehemiah is concerned with covenant or mosaic fidelity. He's concerned about the people remaining true to the mosaic law. That's what you're going to see here when we look at the book of Nehemiah. The sins of the people, except for idolatry, are continued in the post-exilic community. Now, what you're going to notice is, is that for pretty much the things that were wrong with Israel before the exile, they're going to continue except for one thing. It's no longer going to be an issue of idolatry. But you're going to see, we're going to see especially, that they're going to intermarry again with the other nations around them. Big problem. Nehemiah addresses that. You're going to see that there's this issue of how they treat each other. That continues on. And so those, some of the same old sins are there, except they've dealt with, at this point, the whole issue of idolatry. Now, let's talk about an outline for Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah can be divided into two main sections. Okay, so when we look at Nehemiah, we can basically find two main sections for us to look at. We see in chapter Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 19, the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. Okay? Then when we come to chapter 7, verse 1, through chapter 13, verse 31, we see the reformation of the people, where they're doing some things to address these sins so that they would remain faithful to the Mosaic Covenant. And we're going to see that happening here as well. So again, if you'll notice on the screen, we're going to give you a structure of the book of Nehemiah. So again, you can see our two main sections there. So first of all, chapter 1 is the report from Jerusalem. That's why Nehemiah responds with prayer and going to the king about what's going on. Then chapter 2 is the preparations for the task of rebuilding. You see what the efforts are as far as taking care and getting ready for the task. Chapters 3 through 6 then focus on the rebuilding of the walls. The rebuilding of the walls. So and that brings us to the issue of the reformation of the people. And so what we're going to notice now in chapter 7 is the list of those who returned. So these are the list of inhabitants in Jerusalem of those who returned from exile. Then what we're going to see in chapters 8 through 9 is spiritual renewal. We're going to see the renewal of the people uh, who returned. Then when we move over 
to chapter 11, we're going to see again the list of the residents who are in or those who would dwell in the city. Now, when we come to chapter 12, we see the list of the priests and the dedication of the wall. That gets us to chapter 13, where we focus on Nehemiah's second administration. So it's obvious that Nehemiah left and went back to Persia, but then chapter 13 shows us that he then goes back and is governor once again of the people there in Jerusalem. And so we're going to see that with the book of Nehemiah. All right, now let's get to our final book, which is the book of Esther. So let's talk about its title. It is named after the Persian queen, Esther. Okay, so this book is named after the Persian queen, who was a Jew. Her name in Hebrew is Hadassah, which means myrtle. That's what her name is in Hebrew. Now, her name in Persian meant star. So the meaning of her name Esther in Persian is star. The identity of the author of this book is unknown. We don't know who wrote this book. Some would speculate it must have been Mordecai. Well, it could have been, or it could have been some other scribe. We don't know. Whoever the author is knew the Persian culture well. So this is obviously somebody who's living outside of the Judean people, or it may have been one of the Judean of the Jews who returned back to the land, but he knows Persian culture very well so that he's able to establish what's going on in the narrative. Some have suggested that Ezra or Nehemiah wrote the book, but no specific evidence supports this view. So there's no, some people say, oh, it was Ezra or Nehemiah, but there's no way to have any support to show that. The book could have been written between 470 and 465, that's Xerxes' reign, or the reign of his son, Artaxerxes, in 464 through 424. So it could have been written in any of those two periods of these two Persian kings. Now, let's make some general observation, Okay. The book has had trouble being included in the Hebrew canon. What? Well, we're going to tell you why. There's Some would say included, some would say not. Okay? Now, this is probably because it does not mention. Okay, so let's take a look at this. It doesn't mention any name of God in the entire book. It doesn't mention the temple. It doesn't mention the law of Moses. It doesn't mention sacrifice or any sacrifice to be made. It doesn't mention Jerusalem. And it doesn't specifically mention prayer, although that is implied. So you need to understand, so it's because there's no mention of Yahweh at all, of God or anything with regards to the religious focus of the Jewish people, it's had some problems being included in the Hebrew canon. Now, you need to also recognize that Esther, like Ruth, is not quoted in the New Testament. Jesus didn't quote it in the Gospels. Paul didn't quote it, or any of the other writers in the New Testament did not quote Esther like they also did not quote Ruth. 
It seems to have been included in the Jewish canon to explain the origin of the non-Mosaic feast of Purim. Purim is a feast that is mentioned, that is celebrated in Jewish culture, and this seems to be included in the Jewish canon to explain why that is. Now, what we also see is, is the author was describing God's unfailing preservation of his people without even mentioning God. It shows you the preservation of his people. Now, let's talk about an outline for Esther, okay? So, the book of Esther can be divided into three main sections, okay? Three main sections that you and I need to consider. All right, so first of all, we see the elevation of Esther. And we find that in Esther's chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 21. Then we're going to see the rivalry between Mordecai, who is Esther's uncle, and Haman, who is an Agite, a Persian. And we're going to see that in Esther's chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 17. Then we're going to come to chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 3, which talks about the day of vengeance and the feast of Purim. So finally, let's take a look at a structure of the book of Esther. Let's end with this. So you're going to see our three main sections. So when you come to chapter 1, we're going to see the problem with the Persian queen Vashti and what she did and how she was removed from being the Persian queen. Then we're going to be in chapter 2, which talks about Esther chosen as the queen. That brings us then to chapters 3 through 7, 3 through 8, which talks about Mordecai and Haman. So we see Haman's plot against the Jews in chapter 3. We see Esther's, uh, basically Esther gets involved and we see her intervention in chapter 4. Chapter 5 is going to express Haman's plot against Mordecai, again because he's got a fierce anger towards Mordecai. We're also going to see Haman's humiliation and execution in chapter 6 through 7. And then we're finally going to see Mordecai's elevation in the kingdom in chapter 8. Then when we get to the third section, which is going to be in chapter 9 and only the three verses that are chapter 10, we're going to talk about the day of vengeance. Chapter 9 specifically talks about the Jews' day of vengeance. And then chapter 10 is going to refer to the Feast of Purim. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on when we get to the book of Esther. So next week, we're going to get right into it. We're going to look at the return back to the land as recorded in the book of Ezra.